Welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Our guest today is Isham Ugiri. He is the CEO of Enigma. Isham, tell us about yourself. Hi there, my name is Isham Ugiri. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Enigma. Um, Enigma is a data technology company in New York focused on uh, basically providing the identity and health of over 30 million small businesses in the US. It's a particularly hairy problem. There's extremely low visibility into the small businesses and it's one of the most important sectors of the economy. It's been traditionally extremely difficult to get these businesses access to credit and we help the financial ecosystem understand these businesses more so that they can be uh, more ambitious in, in their lending and supporting these businesses with their needs. So what you're saying is, is this kind of like a Dun and Bradstreet for small businesses? Um, definitely. I mean, Dun and Bradstreet is a company in the industry. They've been around for very long. You know, Abraham Lincoln was actually an employee of Dun and Bradstreet. I did not know that. Which is a funny tidbit. Um, but our approach is just data science driven fundamentally, right? Okay. I think the data business is much, much older than the technology business, if you think about it, actually, right? Data has been around and, and been used before computers were, were even invented. Um, and our approach is, is one that really centers around entity resolution and the ability to combine all kinds of extremely diverse data sets and viewpoints to come up with a much more predictive view on a business, on the economy. And so we definitely sit in this world amongst these, these very, very large data companies that have been around for a while, but think that there is a, a, a much more kind of data-driven, machine learning-driven way to even build the data business, which is ironic in and of itself. Okay, so before we follow up with that, I want to go back to this Abraham Lincoln comment because you have kind of sparked a, a, an idea. So Dun & Bradstreet's been around long enough that our 16th president, one of our greatest presidents, was an employee. Further, if you go even farther back, if you look at Europe, which you know, is obviously influential throughout the entire world into the United States as well because of the, you know, immigration and all that. The, and I don't remember the exact number, but I read an article a while back that the top 440 or 660 or something like that families in Europe are still the same families that were the richest families 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Right. The wealth has accumulated to the point where they're essentially untouchable. Uh, and, and that's not to say from a criminal perspective, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that, you know, there's an infrastructure that has been built around these families through, you know, 1500 years. Uh, and it is static at this point. And when I roll this forward, I actually had a really great conversation with our chief operating officer, Amanda Nystrom, about this. At what point should a company no longer be allowed to function as that company? And there's a couple of companies you can think about. 
Uh, GM is a good example. GM uh, has been around for over 100 years, uh, except that they haven't been around over 100 years because in 08 or 09, they needed the bailout. And it's, this isn't an issue of whether or not they should have been bailed out. That's not what I'm discussing. Um, but what happened was it was a reverse merger. So the GM of today is literally not the same GM, even though it may have the same shareholders, it may have the same you know, board or whatever. It's a different company than it was previously. And when you look at someone like a Dun & Bradstreet, which I've never had a problem with Dun & Bradstreet. They seem to do what they do and I don't have any. Okay, great. Um, but at what point do you say, okay, time to start over? Is it, you know, you know, take Ford, Henry Ford. Is it when Henry Ford passed on, can only one further generation continue that corporation? At what point do we divest or should we divest, right? Because currently, uh, especially in the current political climate, there is a, a large push for income disparity, resolving some of those issues. And a lot of those issues are caused by historically having companies that are still operating after hundreds or thousands of years because they are able to consolidate influence, whether that be money or power or authority or assets. You know, Catholic Church is a great example of largest landowner in the world, that type of thing. And again, this is not about attacking those entities, but I'm curious what are your thoughts on longevity and equity in terms of having these long living institutions? Um, I, first of all, fascinating question. Um, I think, listen, I think there, there are two things that I'm really excited about when I think about the history of companies and the history of institutions um, one that relates specifically to the moment of time that we're in and, and, and kind of what motivates us at Enigma. I think, listen, if you think about it, you know, th- it, there's this notion of, you know, uh, alone, you know, we can go only so far. And so companies are this amazing way to kind of collectivize the brain power of a bunch of people, right? That's all companies are essentially, right? They they are the brain power and the sum of all actions by by the people that um, that work there, and then eventually they start to build products and assets and develop moats that make it really really hard for other companies to compete. And what we saw with the industrial revolution is just this massive kind of advance by companies who had been successful, who do have, who did have capital and were able to just grow to these ginormous sizes. And, you know, it was kind of thought that these companies would be around to stay forever and that their size and scale in and of itself was the barrier to competition. But I think what we're seeing now as we kind of zoom past the industrial revolution, no pun intended, and to this extremely digital kind of more decentralized age. I think that barrier for competition, which was one scale is basically quickly disappearing, right? So I'll give you just the easiest example. If you take a look at 
kind of Anheuser-Busch's corporate strategy or any one of these large CPG companies, what they're doing right now is basically identifying all of the kind of microbrewery, small brand drinks who are able to do things that they've never done before to gain market share. Like it is extremely easy to go get partial time at a factory right now to make a run of your product. It is extremely easy to link up with a small design agency who has the prowess of what you know a, a large Madison Avenue firm would have commanded on its own 50 years ago, right? And suddenly you have a brand. Distribution can be done directly to clients, right? We don't have to necessarily buy your way into stocking the product and kind of pumping the demand up for something new. You can target people directly. And so we view this, and I view this, this, this kind of move towards decentralization because of technology, ultimately the first step to small businesses becoming an even more important part of the economy. And in fact, the kind of creative and innovative driver of this. Certainly see this in the technology space where a small team can kind of out nimble, you know, the, the, the largest incumbents. But I think it's much larger than tech companies itself. It's really tech enabling a, a kind of decentralization of the economy because the platforms exist for at scale distribution, the platforms exist for, you know, at scale uh, creation of awareness. And those thousand year old companies, you know, they won't have much left in the barrier of competition. And I think will be very, very weighed down by the legacy they have to manage. So I, I'm very optimistic that, you know, that point of view could have held for hundreds of years, but likely not long into the future. Now that's interesting to me because I think there's two sides, um, you know, taking, trying an objective view of what you said. One of them is that the ease of access to technology is going to increase the ease of access to market, which is going to increase competition. Here's the problem. Once you increase competition, basic economics, prices go down, right? Now that's good. You can make, end up in a situation where things are more equitable. But using Anheuser-Busch as an example, they're just buying everybody. So there is no competition. Correct. So I mean, yes, right. you have the monopoly concern where, you know, basically, or like Facebook strategy, which has been so masterfully executed, right, which is to kind of identify their competition super early and just go out and buy it and integrate it into their, their ad network, right? Now, so, let me interject here, because I think this is fascinating. And this will actually... Um, I think that this will distinguish our age difference. You said Facebook, I think Microsoft, <laughs> because that's exactly what Microsoft did. They didn't make they didn't make Excel, they didn't make LinkedIn, they didn't make Skype, right? They didn't make hyperscale, which is is something that's in my world, which is the Postgres world. They they bought Citus is what they did. Yep. Now that isn't that isn't to take away from Microsoft. It's just to show. <laughs> A, a pronounced vision, and Facebook is also a good example. I just wish Mark Zuckerberg wasn't such a 
interesting individual as to willing to buy 640 acres and cut it off from indigenous people in Hawaii. That's a fact. You can look it up. Um, but the, you know, Facebook is also, you know, they did WhatsApp, they, or I think, it, and then they did uh, Instagram. Uh, and I'm sure they've got their hand or Oculus is a perfect example. My family owns Oculuses and we have to have a Facebook account to use Oculus, which I find unfortunate. Um, so there is definitely that. But again, what's happening is, is that the larger corporations are creating uh, basically fiefdoms and we're ending up in this situation. We're sure on a, a lesser level and command prompts a perfect example of this. We work with a lot of the big boys because we're able to be more nimble than they are and we're more flexible. We get in there, we can solve the problems. We make big boys look good. We have a great reputation for solving problems for clients and therefore it works. But if you look at a different industry, let's say retail. Now, part of this is fascinating because I went through a very rural part of Oregon uh, a couple of years ago and went into an antique shop. That antique shop, I made a, I found a knife that had been made in that town. They had found it in an old barn where the guy had a home blacksmithy. And I wanted this knife. So I bought the knife, but I made an offer on the knife. And the individual said, let me check. And the individual went on eBay and did a quick comparative to see if I was offering a fair price. Now, that to me is awesome. That is amazing. And so from that level, I think you're absolutely correct. We're creating a more equitable playing field for everyone to actually be able to succeed. But on the other hand, you have the GEs, you have the Dun & Bradstreets. I mean, let's be honest, the Dun & Bradstreet finds that your particular direction with Enigma is of even fa just fascination. They may approach you and say, hey, why don't you come on board? And you know, and not saying that you would say yes, but when someone like Dun & Bradstreet comes to you with a checkbook, you at least listen. Um, so on that vein, right? I, I don't think it's as simple as making it equitable for small businesses. I think what happens is, is that you do in a situation where like an Anheuser-Busch just starts swallowing up the particularly interesting competitors, which again, reduces competition, which keeps prices higher than what they would necessarily need to be. Correct. Like there's, there's, um, you know, in a transition, it doesn't look like a linear line. It's going to look like a lot of ups and downs towards this direction, in my opinion. Right. But the fundamental premise holds where, you know, like take say what we're doing at Enigma, like I, I describe our mission sometimes to folks as basically destroying the information arbitrage available to large companies versus small companies. Like we can equip a young, like a young company takes a, a new FinTech to compete against the largest banks with this on the same playing field from a data perspective. And yes, people will get bought and sold in the cycle, but the idea is that, you know, fundamentally the barriers to starting a business and getting innovation out into the hands of users and consumers, that barrier is coming down no matter how many people buy it on the back end. 
And even these brands, you know, they're like, take say the Anheuser-Busch example, the, the brands are being run pretty independently, right? So there is a lot of transfer, in my opinion, from these big pockets of wealth to, you know, to, to more innovative companies growing. And, you know, fundamentally, we just haven't seen that in um, the, the kind of the data about, you know, inequity and, um, and just more, you know, the, the, the distribution of wealth has definitely kind of not supported this theory. Um, but I think it'll take so much more time for this to, to play out. I mean, maybe over even like hundreds of years in and of itself, I just see the fundamentals, the like qualitative fundamentals of being able to get, you know, up and running. I remember when we started our business, AWS was not even, you know, the thing. It wasn't even, it wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, um, a something that you, that you naturally gravitated to the way in which you do it today, where AWS would kind of kick you off with $150,000 worth of credits. Like I remember, you know, in, in, in your world of things, like being on IRC, the like post Greece IRC channel, talking to random folks, special shout out to, I don't know if you know this blog, Rhodium Toad. Um, I, I very much know Rodian Toad. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> some, his, some history here. I'm actually the founder of United States Postgres QL. No. I, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been doing this. I, I wrote a book for O'Reilly back in the day called Practical Postgres QL. It was like 2001. I'm the founder of United States Postgres QL. Uh, I sat on the board of Software in the Public Interest, which is the nonprofit for Debian as well as postgresql.org as uh, the what they call the liaison, which was basically the treasurer. I did that for almost a decade. And Rhodium and Toad and I, I mean, he actually agreed, shout out. He is the one that helped me understand in a consumable way that I could then educate people on because I, I used to do a lot of training on how PostgreSQL handles data rights. Ooh. Yeah, he's 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 an amazingly wonderful individual. He's always been very helpful, traditionalist in the sense of the Internet is open. Let's help everyone be successful. So it's actually really cool that you brought up some of that, you know, OG technology, I guess, that we were dealing with back in the day. I mean, um, just the ability, you know, uh, I, I was very familiar with kind of the more infrastructural uses of data. I mean, I, I, I kind of grew up in the energy industry, very much so doing kind of money ball like things in the energy industry, um, first in Texas and then all over Africa where I was, I'm originally from Morocco. Um, I had the opportunity to do a lot of sustainable investing in Africa using data. But when I started Enigma, I remember us loading kind of very, very large public open data sets into Postgres where you know, it was the very first place where they landed. Things are different today. But we, I remember Rhodium Toad, I'll give you the, the, the snippet and this will kind of age me as a person and, and out me in terms of how bad of a developer I am. But I remember um, him teaching my co-founder and I basically the copy statement and like how to use that to load data into 
post quiz much faster as opposed to inserting things line by line, which we were doing, you know, the very first couple of weeks that we were loading it. We, you know, you just kind of gravitate towards the insert statement <laughs> and then your data gets larger and larger and you're like, okay, all right, let's do the copy. And then you have to kind of rework how it is that you're parsing things and, and formatting things for the right schema. But that, that, that's the specific Rhodium Toad shout out I care about the most, more, more than any. Yeah, so let's get back to what Enigma does for a moment. You said something that was interesting. You said that you enable small companies like a new FinTech company to basically level their playing field against some of the big guys, you know, say like a Morgan Stanley or, or JP or something like that. What does that actually mean? Like command prompt comes to you and, and we, because one of the things you said in the beginning was that uh, you enable insights into the stability of smaller companies so that say a bank can feel more comfortable lending to that, that company. Now, yep. command prompt is very, uh, we're a cash-based company, always have been. We don't do debt. Of course, we have credit lines. It's only responsible because we have employees. Uh, but, you know, we don't, we don't invest backwards. If, if we're going to do something, we just pay for it. Um, the, but how, how does that help? How do you help someone like a command prompt saying, you know what? We've got this brilliant idea. We don't want to go to VC, but we need, say, $10 million. What is the data that you are providing? I mean, how do you have insight into the command prompt? Because we're a small business. We're not public. Yeah, well, there's tons of products that available to small business kind of canonically in market. The first is, you know, just straight up credit cards, right? Which you use to pay things on a monthly basis. You have invoices, they come at a certain time. You have expenses, they come at a certain time. Just managing that cash flow. Cards have been an extraordinary important product. But, you know, even for cards, like small businesses face hassles. In getting them. And I'll give you a personal anecdote. We, um, a couple of banks have invested in us, Capital One, Amex, Truist over the years. Um, and I won't kind of out any specific one, but let's just say we had raised a, a pretty large round. And a couple of weeks after, we hit up one of the banks for a credit card and we got rejected. I mean, then we had raised, I think, like, millions of dollars and we got rejected for a $20,000 line of credit. Okay. And the reason was they couldn't verify us as a business. They're like, you gave us an address that wasn't your corporate registration address. You gave us a phone number that didn't link back to you. And we we're like, Whoa, what do you mean at address? We've moved three times, you know, in the last, you know, uh, year and a half, we're a pretty fast growing company. And We've never had a landline. We don't need a landline. We have, you know, cell phones and like virtual lines, uh, voice IP lines. And even that process of onboarding small businesses is the kind of thing that, you know, we fix on a day-to-day -day basis, be it with big folks or, or, or small folks. So the problems are just way more acute than, than, than people think. Like try renting a car as a small business, right? And the kind of paperwork that you have to do. Um, so that's one thing. Then there's, um, I'm getting back to original question, but I'll- Yeah. Thing. 
I, I was going to say, I, I, this is a unique situation um, because <laughs> I, since I almost wonder if this is because of the generation you're in, and, I, and I'll give you an example of command prompt. We've never had any of those problems ever. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying they don't exist, but what I'm saying is, is that when we started business, right, the internet was young. It now certainly the internet as a technology was not, it's been around since the seventies, but as a business orientation of how you conduct business, it was young. It was in, in the late nineties. Um, and so you had a fax machine, you had uh, a landline, you had, if you know, you, you had an Amex right now, even today, we still have the same fax machine, which actually wasn't a physical fax machine. It was a fax number that was virtual, but banks didn't know it was virtual. And our voicemail uh, runs the exact same number we've had since day one, but it's just a voicemail box. You're right. We don't have any landlines. We have all our cell phones. And so I wonder if there's the, the it's basically a growing pains issue. You know, banks, bank, especially banks are not known for innovative things. They are known for moving very slow, being very cumbersome, uh, very bureaucratic. And as someone who works with a lot of banks, I can tell you largely does not understand technology at all. It is amazing to me how much, how many people are employed by banks that are in technology that do not understand technology at all. Um. So I wonder if with your with you right you're you're talking about like the last decade or so right where there's you're right your whole business may be run from a Skype number and an Etsy page that doesn't mean you're not a lit legitimate it doesn't mean you're not doing you know nine figures it's just not the old way and and if you tack onto this and by the way you're absolutely right to call out the the kind of time component because really what's happened over the last 30 years is that the relationship in between the small business and the bank has been severed with consolidation of the large banks. I mean, there used to be much, much more diversity in the banking system. I mean, there still is today, like 43% of outstanding small business debt is held by community banks. They play an extremely important role in the sector. And we saw this with kind of how PPP was rolled out. Um, but, you know, it was even more so. And so the consolidation in the banking system that happened with kind of deregulation, you know, in the late 80s, 90s, and just kind of the Wall Street drive towards consolidation um, in, the, in the 2000s, like that's really what severed the relationship. And you can't just kind of, go into your banker who understands your business, who is local to you, you know, you're now suddenly dealing with kind of an abstracted relationship and an attempt to manage small businesses at scale, you know, using technology and that technology and that prowess and that data just hasn't gotten to the banking system uh, in a way that, that replaces that very human understanding as it existed in the past. 
That's interesting. I never really put that correlation together. I mean, obviously, I agree with you with the consolidation, deregulation. Um, you know, we saw a lot of it when the you know the mortgage crisis hit in 08. Right. Right. Um, and you kind of had to, right? Because you had to have the larger organizations be able to take up that debt so that the economy didn't. I mean, a lot of people, don't get me wrong, people were hit very hard when that happened, but it could have been so much worse if we didn't have that consolidation and build up. And now it would seem that we really should start. I mean, if you talk to any personal finance person, for example, out of their mouth is go to a credit union. Right. That's that's what you want to do. You want to go to a credit union. Don't go to a big bank. Those types of things. Um, but again, let, let's get back to the original part here. What is it with Enigma? I'm still having a hard time. Yeah, yeah, grasping sure. the, the, the concrete. What is yeah. if you come to me with a bag of rocks that represent Enigma? Yeah. yeah what is the what, what does that mean? Yeah, totally. So, you know, again, we provide two critical pieces of two categories of information. One is identity, right? That would allow you to onboard a customer with confidence, right? They exist, they're legitimate, they have a footprint in the data. This is not someone, this is someone that you can onboard automatically, right? So automation is a huge part of what we try to enable for folks. That alone is, you know, what helps folks, you know, small businesses, get the services they need, you know, without kind of waiting days and days and days in the funnel and going back and forth on paperwork and sending your corporate registration documents and no, all kinds of notarized material, et cetera, right? Um, the other is the health of a business, which we get from all kinds of signals. We collect data from namely three places. One is public, public work like the public data that's available, that's released by all kinds of institutions, but predominantly government. That could be corporate registrations, liens that you have from taking out loans. That could be uh, Warren Act filings. So if a company is going to have an especially massive layoff, they actually have to warn the government um, 90 days in advance, things like that. Um, you know, we take a look at all kinds of data when we opine on the, the, the health of a business from the public realm. The second place we collect data is from the web at large. We maintain, you know, crawling operation that looks at all kinds of things like, you know, the business's underlying website, how it appears, you know, um, uh, in a search engine, what other results, you know, are, are, are linked to the business. This kind of data actually helps us build machine learning models to predict things like whether a business is open or closed, whether a business is in a specific industry or not. Think about it for insurance. It's extremely important to validate whether something is a restaurant or a bar that basis of that identity is so helpful down the line. And then things, uh, the third sources of data is from the bank themselves. Um, so actually part of a banking consortium where we help and contribute upstream the identity of merchants. And then we get some uh, signals from merchant transaction data, like how, how often people are 
kind of swiping things at a certain place? How many unique customers? What's the stability of their card revenue? Giving us a window into uh, you know, the credit worthiness, the growth potential, signs of distress. Maybe this business you know, has just utterly stopped transacting for, for months. Um, giving us the ability to create very much so like a FICO-like uh, piece of intelligence that allows folks to lend to small business. You have to understand there is no credit bureau for small businesses. And so part of the problem that's been happening is for large business, you have a big corporate veil from a liability standpoint, okay? You know, everyone knows how to rate them, what rating they have, how credit worthy they are. For small business, the job looks so hard for the banks and it becomes so difficult to parse through all of this data and all of the uniqueness of individual businesses, you know, business model and operations that they just give up and say, okay, well, we'll give you this credit card or we'll give you this million dollar term loan or we'll give you $50,000 to create an outdoor space for your restaurant. But you, Mr. or Mrs. Business Owner, will have to personally guarantee this. Creating, I think, what is a completely um, uh, perhaps a necessary divide in between small companies and big companies, uh, a competitive, you know, equal footing. Because it's okay, not just what? capital, it's capital with the ability to take risk and innovate with that capital that businesses need. Right. Imagine if every Wall Street CEO was liable, their homes, their cars, their savings for, you know, whether or not they they go they go under and compare that with the restaurant owner, you know, who now is suddenly being asked because fundamentally, you know, the financial system, it's not efficient enough at them at for them at scale to to rate these companies from a credit perspective, just kick it back to a personal guarantee. That's no bueno in, in my opinion. This is actually, you've, I'm gonna latch onto two points here. Uh, both of them, not only relevant to command prompt, but all small businesses that you stated. Uh, that is something, I'm gonna start with your last point and then move back to your, your second point. Command prompt is a perfect example. We have been in, in business as a corporation. We've been in business since 2000. We've existed since 97. We have never bounced a check. We have zero debt, except for two years when we were, uh, when I was personally going through a divorce, we have been profitable every single year, period. We are the picture. We've never, you know, never overdrawn an account, nothing. We are the picture of a company that you want to loan money to. If I was a person, which, and we could get into the whether or not company or, pe or corporations or people a whole nother time, but as a normal individual, I can get credit all day long. But as a company that represents the same values, they want me to personally guarantee or put up my house or something like that, even for what most people would consider a small amount of money, let's say $250,000. Uh, and I shouldn't say people, I should say 
companies would consider a small amount of money, uh, $250,000. And you're right, because we've tried. We have had business initiatives that have been held back because of funding, because we're a cash-based company. Um, that you know, we, We've gone to the bank and said, look, we don't want to do VC. We, we don't want to go that route. We want to do a legitimate, give us money for a small period of time, and we will make sure you get your interest rate back plus principal. Let's have a good relationship. And we even deal with small banks. And they said, sure, we're happy to, but we're going to put a lien against this piece of property that you have. And you need to personally guarantee that if the company doesn't pay it back, you're going to pay it back. And to me, <laughs> I could see that in our first, let's say, five years, right? Because most companies fail within the first five years. But we, as an entity, are three, what, 25 years old. And yet it is still all but impossible for Command Prompt to get a small loan to invest in itself, to hire people, to bring people up out of their current socioeconomic status and invest in them to be better people, better society members, allow them to have more consumable power, right? It's all but impossible because the banks require that all of that risk ultimately falls personally on the primary shareholder. So from that perspective, I find what you're doing fascinating. Now, I'm going to go back to the second point real quick, because this is something that a lot of small businesses do not understand. Your, it, and it all boils down to this now, the social presence. Now, you could say public presence, but it's not a public presence, because a public presence still to this day could be argued is just an ad in the yellow pages. Even, they do still exist. We're talking about your social presence. When you say who are linking to the company, what kind of information is out there about them, how are they connected, what's the web archive say, what, you know, how, what's their artificial turnover rate, all these types of things that are all socially connected in the public space. That is vitally important, and I will give you a perfect example. If I come to your website and there is not a phone number, I will not, I will not do business with you. I, it's not that I'm holding on to some romantic notion of being able to walk into an office and shake someone's hand. It's that a phone number is at a minimum, it's a minimum level of, of guarantee that there is a human not an algorithm behind the company. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use algorithms, data science, machine learning. Of course we should. But fundamentally, there's got to be a throat to choke. And a lot of small businesses don't get this. And so you'll see things pop up that, you know, they're wondering why no one sees them as credible when, when, when someone has a, a business page on, you know, some public website versus a domain name. They don't have a phone number. They don't have an email address that associates with their domain name. There's a lack of credibility there. And what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that you help banks, for example, see that lack or not lack of credibility through those social metrics. Is that correct? Absolutely. Through all kinds of metrics, right? The ones that we find on the web, which to your point, 
are inherently social, right? Like the Yelp presence of a company. If a restaurant is not on Yelp, that's actually kind of weird, right? Um, if a technology company- Which is funny because I've never used Yelp in my life. But I know, I'm actually an <laughs> avid, I'm a bad Yelp user. I don't, you know, I don't use, I'm in the same segment of the population where I'm kind of walking by the restaurant, looking at the menu and I'm like, oh, that, that, that looks good. Um, but, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of things that kind of trigger you know, is this a good business? Is this a bad business? And overwhelmingly, we believe, you know, the financial ecosystem just doesn't do a good job enough of identifying, you know, the, the, the good businesses, right? They have more capital than they've ever had before. I mean, we've been living in a low interest rate, money flowing environment for over a decade now, 14 years, right? And these banks are very excited to lend to businesses, but they just, you know, again, there are 30 million small businesses out there. This is not 5,000 publicly listed companies. Unentangling the entities alone is a difficult job, right? And so identifying those, those key things, um, we feel is is really important to unlocking credit. Unlocking credit without personal guarantees and all kinds of things that we think the sector needs for for sustained growth, especially after last year. Yeah, it's actually funny that you brought up the you know how much capital there's of it. I was reading the Wall Street Journal today or last night, and it said it was an article about banks saying, "Please God, spend some money." stop putting all your money in us because there are some companies i mean apple's a good example apple has so much cash they could be their own country right you spend some of that <laughs> you know um so you're right i mean interest rates have been so low inflation has been so low we're seeing that creep up a little bit now um what is it you know let's let's segue here because we, we've you know, our listeners, they're used to a little bit of the people stuff. And we want to make sure that we discuss that as well as what is really a fascinating topic, what you're doing. And I think it is not only noble, but I think it's it's righteous that someone is, and I don't mean like righteous, man. I mean, it's a, it's a righteous thing to do, to be in a situation where you are a company trying to help small companies, which in a lot, what a lot of people don't realize is as big as Google is, Microsoft is, you know, Morgan Stanley is, the economy is driven by mom and pop. The economy is driven by companies of 250 employees or less. That is where the real uh, inertia moves forward. And so I do think it is a great thing that you're doing to help these companies have a more equal footing to allow them to invest in themselves through providing the larger companies that lend the money, uh, you know, metrics that say, hey, yeah, okay, so they're, they're only 10 million bucks a year, but they're only looking for 250 grand or 500 grand, and their financials are stable, their social metrics are stable. So yeah, let's give it to them. And let's give it to them at a fair interest rate. I think that's awesome. But you and I, before we got into the, the public part of this podcast, we, we kind of bro-loved over something, which was music. And you had mentioned that you're very big into jazz. You were a DJ, you were a DJ in college. 
Um, and then, you know, we talked about you too. Tell me a little bit about, and before we get into like genres, because we can geek out over music all day long and we'll get to that a little bit, but let me, let me phrase it this way. You're angry. Something happened. We all get there. We all like to pretend that we've got it under control, but sometimes you're literally one drop of coffee on the countertop to a sledgehammer to the kitchen, right? Not that you would actually do it, but that that's the feeling, right? In your gut, there's that fire. And hopefully that fire is, you know, doesn't demonstrate itself in you destroying your kitchen, especially in New York, where, you know, you might walk, you know, knock through a wall and be in someone's bedroom. Um, but what is that what is that one artist, that one piece of music, that that eloquence, that that sweet romanticism that flows through and brings you back to the wonderment of humanity that exists for you? Oh man, what a question. Um, you know, I think if I would have to pick one, there is this jazz organist named Jimmy Smith, who I once got to interview in a way much similar <laughs> to how I'm being interviewed today. Um, well, this one jazz organist named Jimmy Smith, who basically is the person to have brought in kind of funk into jazz, if funk even maybe came out of jazz, he collaborated with everyone. He was extremely prolific. And his just mastery is about creating this extremely complex jazz progression, kind of masquerading as just smooth, good feeling mojo music. And for me, Jimmy Smith is like the 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 you know it that is my my ground so to speak when it comes to to music and I love all things like rock music classical music from like southern India wh whatever I'm very very um eager and and voracious when it comes to 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 music but Jimmy Smith um by far the man and um such an amazing musician um, was very, very kind of early to, um, to kind of collaborate and cross over uh, his music into, into more mainstream out of jazz. And it's just someone that makes me feel so good. That, that's excellent. So there are two pieces of music um, for two different moods for me. And obviously we all have our different moods. You know, if you're sad, especially if you want to feel sad, Right. There's certain music you'll listen to, and there's you know music has an emotion that is good music that you can really attach to. But there's two pieces for me that one is if I'm upset and angry, and I need to feel better. Um, my partner is by far the most for me the most amazing individual on this planet. I have never met someone who is more inspiring, more intelligent, more beautiful, more driven. Um, and even when I'm angry at her, as we all do, I mean, there's always moments where, you know, you love her even when you hate her, right? That kind of thing. Uh, 
um, there is a song, it's a B-side by U2, and it's called Luminous Times. And that song, even if it's not about her specifically in terms of why I'm upset, when I hear that song, what it does is it elicits such a deep emotional response towards the joy that I have for her that it just takes all of it away. It doesn't matter what it, 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 it doesn't matter what it is. It just takes it all away because it brings that joy from her into my heart and just washes it, washes the hate, the anger, the, the, the bullshit you deal with when it comes to the open source community, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, that's number one. And then if I really want to get into it, if there's some, I, I want to get my heart pumping. And a lot of people, a lot of people know this, this, this set of music, but they don't know what it is because it's very popular, especially through the eighties and nineties. Uh, and it's Karina Barada. And it, it, this set, and I, I, I strongly, if you haven't heard it, I'm sure you have, but if you haven't heard it, Karina Barana is, it's actually about a, um, a series of monks who fall from grace and explore uh, carnal desires. That's what it's actually about. But the, the music set, I mean, everyone's heard it. It's that dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah, there it is. And uh, that's the one I listen to. Like, if, I, if, I'm, if I just can't get the mojo movement, I can't get into that groove, um, you know, I'll fire that up as loud as I can, shaking the windows. And by the end of it, I'm just like, you know what? Let's take the world. So my question to you, and we discussed the first one for you, is what is, what is your Rambo, your Terminator, your uh, chest puffing, ego driving? What, what's that piece for you? Oh, I, um, there is this one album by a, Japanese kind of experimental metal band called Boris. Actually, quite quite big band with like a huge following. Um, and their album is called Amplifier Worship, and it is just very heavily soundscaped guitars, kind of nonstop. Um, and this band is awesome. The guitarist is, I want to say five foot maybe five foot one kind of badass looking Japanese woman um and she just shreds like no one else in my opinion and it's a very fast but then sometimes goes into very slow kind of lets you collect your thoughts and feelings before it gets even louder and for me it's it's all about that that loud tone versus fast um that that really really gets me and you know it really is kind of what the title says it is it's, it's amplifier worship in some senses i'm also like a hi-fi geek and i just like almost sound more than i like music <laughs> um or i'm obsessed with music and and more so the tone than the melody even sometimes and that that album really does it for me so the band is named boris Boris, which is, they named it after 
um, a song by the punk band The Melvins, um, who I guess they're like a grunge band um, from the 80s. And this, this band, yeah, this band is named Boris. Interesting. B-O-R-I-S? B-O-R-I-S. And I think their, their like URL is borisheavyrocks.com. I'm going to look into them because I'm a big fan of guitar. I've seen, and I know that this sounds pretty, uh, I don't know, commonplace, but like I've been to, I've seen Eric Clapton live. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously you two live and things like that. And so the, I've never heard of Boris. And so I'm definitely going to look into them. Um, on that note, we are closing up on some time here. Is there anything uh, whether it be people related, family related, society related, or business related, but we, I mean, we did talk about Enigma quite a bit. I, I think that your technology is interesting. Uh, definitely would like to follow up on that and get a little more geeky. Maybe get a CTO or one of your data engineers on to discuss without obviously without giving away the secrets, but maybe some methodologies that you use uh, that are a little bit deeper versus just the the three components that we discussed. Oh, but totally, I, and I'm happy to. To, to geek out too, whenever, whenever works for you all. I mean, I, you know, they kind of kicked me off the engineering team a couple of years <laughs> in, let's put it that way. I got fired from that. I've been team. there. I've been yeah. there. <laughs> um, I think there was like properly a funeral for the last line of code that I had <laughs> running. Um, but I'm still heavily involved. I mean, I think the one thing that I could tell you about us going a little bit more deeply is that we are so much more a data science shop than a machine learning shop. Like machine learning is prevalent everywhere and everything that we do. Um, but for us, like putting a, a, a quality data product out, it's, it's about, it's not just what algorithm you use. It's about, you know, how do you think about the training data that you're collecting? Can you generate it? You know, how do you think about your quality process? How do you parse out research versus development? How do you like the 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 kind of the culture of having a, a, a thriving data science organization is much more important to us than any one specific, you know, machine learning technique. And for, for us, most of the machine learning is in our entity resolution process like taking you know, very, very disparate data sets, having kind of incomplete attributes for one entity in each, and then combining it into a single cluster and a definitive view of that entity kind of collapsed across all of the data. That's where most of our machine learning work really is. Um, but I, if I had to say something that I'm really proud about is that the teams kind of understanding that data science is a much larger thing that is a thing that kind of forces you to think deeply about the real world as well, right? Like what, what is even a company? If a restaurant moves 20 blocks and changes the menu, like is that the same company, right? Or if ownership changes and the menu is the same and the location is the same, but you know, the way the business is run differently. Like there's all kinds of kind of deeply philosophical questions when you work with data. 
and engaging those, I think is, is um, key to success. So if there was, I was going to geek out on anything, it's this data science greater than machine learning. So it's interesting that you uh, bring that up because we did have a, a podcast recently. I was, I mentioned uh, she was a, a weightlifter as well as a data scientist. Uh, Stephanie Kermer, a fascinating lady, really brilliant. Um, but her background is sociology. And so we had a, whole, a, a long discussion about the societal impacts of data science and the idea of just because we can, should we, because we have this data. Um, because data is, you know, a data set tends to be Boolean and you have to take into account uh, the gray areas. And that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Is taking into the gray. For example, if a business moves 20 blocks and changes the menu, is it still that business? Well, that's a gray area. From a data perspective, um, you know, if the legal structure didn't change, it's still that business. But the gray area of that is the variable of is that new menu and location going to be successful? Um, and with that, uh, I want to thank you for joining us we'd love to have you on again this has been fascinating i was not aware that in the marketplace there was options for small business in this situation and obviously you're working directly with the the companies that small businesses work with but hopefully something like this will continue to help these small businesses thrive i have nothing against big business but i would always prefer to do uh, business with uh, you know someone who is local within my environment for most things and with that, thank you for attending and listening to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. This podcast is hosted by JD, Command Prompt Founder and Postgres Conference Chair, and is produced by me, Lindsay Hooper, Director of Events at Command Prompt, Inc. Command Prompt provides Postgres support, professional services, custom development, and community leadership. Since 1997, we've focused on providing just excellent service, custom tailored to your organization's needs. We'll see you soon, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.